You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Uh, continuing uh, this, uh, this quarantine in California. Uh, boy, I'm getting sick of it, aren't you? The mask culture and all this. Listen, I know we need to wear them, but I can't say I like it. And I really do miss, um, you know, kind of being at events and concerts and all all that kind of stuff, sporting events. I'm terrified that the NFL could not happen. I think that would be the coup de grace for me. I think I'd probably have to just call it quits at that point if that happened. Let's hope it doesn't. At any rate, uh, listen, before we begin with today's topic, I want to remind you that there is something called wealthformula.com. And that's where you need to go if you want to sign up for all the goodies that come with this show, including a potential membership to our accredited investor club, uh, which is, you know, it's where the magic happens. This show is education. If you want action, that's where you got to go, the accredited investor club. So go to wealthformula.com and just sign up if you are accredited, of course. And also, there's lots of other opportunities to sign up for, you know, other downloads and books, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but um, anyway, check it out, wealthformula.com. Now, as far as today's show, I want to tell you something. There is a, a phenomena that I, I uh, find absolutely fascinating that, that I have witnessed firsthand. And, um, you know, the best way for me to explain to you is, to tell you a story about it, you know, this guy I know out in California has been very successful as a fund manager over the years, smart guy. And I asked him once about the expectation that his investors had for for returns, and he quickly replied five percent. And knowing this guy was pretty savvy and could easily produce more than five percent for his investors. Well, I said, well, he must be making them pretty happy, right? Because he's consistently outperforming that expectation on a consistent basis. And he said, no way, no way. I am not about to scare anyone off. So I'm thinking to myself, what is he talking about? So he continues to explain that if his investors saw money, you know, if, if they saw uh, bigger returns that they might consider their investment to not be quote unquote safe. In other words, higher returns means that there might be something wrong and therefore, you know, they're in something that might not be reliable for their money. Um, and so they would be doing something risky. So instead of scaring people by giving them bigger returns, this guy was nice enough to spare them the scare and pocketed the spread himself. Now, of course, he wasn't doing anything wrong. This was completely understood in the documents that he provided his investors, which said that he was going to deliver up to 5%, and he had routinely uh, done so. Um, now, as a real estate investor, you may be scratching your head right about now about this phenomena because, you know, you, you may not know that this is sort of status quo in the financial services world. And in fact, 5% is pretty darn good for something that's considered safe. Usually we want, you know, we're looking at like 1%, right? And bonds, et cetera. But conventional financial wisdom trains people to believe that nothing can be possibly profitable unless it is, you know, risky. Um, and to be, you know, to be, clear there is some truth to that when it comes to things like the bond market right um, however i can tell you 
that we see exceptions to this rule all the time in real estate. If you've been in our accredited investor club for long, which if you aren't, you should sign up for, as I said, you've seen this play out in apartment buildings over and over again. These big, you know, big multiple hundred unit apartment buildings, which are not particularly risky assets, frankly. So is it possible to have a relatively safe asset that makes money in recessionary times and makes even more money when times are good? Well, again, I think there is. I mean, I think we've seen that in apartments, but uh, you know, I've happened to partner uh, with a, a, a couple of guys that I've known for a long time and have invested with them. Our group has uh, invested with them in the past. They are a top 25 operator in this category of real estate uh, that is called uh, self-storage facilities. Um, and this area seems to thrive no matter what the economy looks like. Of course, listen, all real estate is operator dependent. So you can't say, oh, yeah, you know, it thrives no matter what. And if you've got some idiot who is running the show, you're not going to thrive no matter what. But this particular partner raised net operating income across his portfolio by 9% during 2008. Yes, the financial meltdown was in 2008. And meanwhile, this guy's portfolio was up net operating income by 9%. I mean, that's not net, that's net operating income on, on, on leveraged, uh, leveraged net operating income increase. Imagine, uh, you know, the increase in, in, in value. Um, you know, this operator has also obviously seen an average uh, that's much higher uh, when times are good. In fact, at a project basis, the average return um, uh, that these guys have seen, uh, this group has seen, is about 64%, uh, you know, annualized return. I mean, that that's just mind-blowing numbers, right? In other words, during downtimes, they've done very well, and during thriving economies, they have you know, they absolutely crush it. So pretty interesting. And of course, just to be clear, this is not suggesting that this is, you know, this is a guarantee. This is a track record. This is just a fax. This is just reality. Um, and also to be clear, this is not a mom and pop shop that got lucky by, you know, pushing a couple of, uh, you know, small self-storage facilities. This is the 25th largest operator of self-storage in the country. So if you want to learn more, keep listening, because when we come back, I am going to talk to my partner in crime on this uh, self-storage world, Lou Pollock. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Mr. Lou Pollock. He is the managing principal of Reliant Real Estate, which specializes in self-storage facilities, um, and now... Uh, a uh, partner of RWF Partners, which is our new partnership uh, between Reliant and Wealth Formula, which, of course, that's where the RWF comes from. And uh, that's where we're going to combine our skills and operations and strategy, et cetera, to bring our community of accredited investors, uh, you know, some really nice uh, curated self-storage opportunities. Obviously, we're not going to talk about anything specific related to that right now, but that is uh, that who is who Lou is. He has been in this business for a very long time, and I'm excited about the partnership. Lou, welcome back to Wealth Formula Podcast. 
Well, thank you very much, Buck. It's nice to see you again. So, Lou, just to reacquaint yourself with our our, our group here, our audience, uh, you've been in the self-storage business for a very long time. Why don't you give us a little idea of you know how you get started in, in, in self-storage? Because as, as I look in your resume, what's striking to me is I think you have a PhD in, uh, in education from back in the 70s, right? That's correct. I was a school teacher. That's a natural segue into self-storage. Well, of course. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> uh, I went to graduate school at UCLA. Mm-hmm. And when I finished, I realized I wasn't going to earn more than I had earned as a teacher five years before that and decided I need to earn, earn more money. I had a friend in Santa Fe, New Mexico, who invited me to come and learn the real estate business, which I really didn't know much about. And so I moved to Santa Fe basically because I liked the idea. Uh, literally the first day I got there, I tried to find a place to store my belongings and could not. Now, back in the early 80s, late 70s, self-storage was really a garage or a Quonset hut. And Santa Fe, being a small town, really didn't have anything larger than a Quonset hut. I met another gentleman there who eventually became a partner of mine. And uh, we both agreed that this was a problem. And how hard could it be to build some Quonset huts? Uh, We hired an engineer, we hired an architect, uh, other professionals, we found a piece of property, and without much thought about it, we went ahead and built a 30,000 square foot building, uh, which was back then a big deal, uh, of non-climate control. We built it, it filled up, we paid it off in three years, and that was kind of the start of what I thought would be a successful business. Yeah, and obviously it's worked out. I mean, um, you know... Tell us a little bit about the self-storage business model in general that really makes it an attractive asset class. Obviously, you know, I think my audience uh, is very familiar, particularly with residential real estate and apartment buildings and that sort of thing. But what is it about um, self-storage that we ought to know potentially to look at it as, you know, something to, um, to invest in at some point? A few things. Firstly, it's robust. Uh, because a typical self-storage facility of ours has anywhere between 800 and 1,000 tenants, uh, it would take quite a bit of disruption for us to see a significant reduction in their operating income. Uh, In that regard, almost any event, including a pandemic, has very little effect on us. In fact, in in this case, with the pandemic, it's actually helped us. Uh, So... Being a robust business is one thing. Secondly, it is a management-based business. 50% or more of this business, like the hotel business, is management. And our philosophy is we give our on-site managers a great deal of responsibility in making sure that we are managing our clientele and our cash uh, uh, directly and uh, every day. So... One, it appealed to me, one, because it's robust. Secondly, because it's a management business and, and I know how to manage, as does my partner, Todd Allen. And thirdly, it is a passive income in, in, in such that I don't have to show up every day on site to see what's going on. Uh, the, the revenue will continue whether we're there or not there for a particular day or a week. Of course, we do have to keep our eyes on it, but 
uh, recurring revenue is something, as you know, in the apartment business is something that's very appealing to all of us. Sure. You know, what's one of those things that I, you know, a couple other things that I think that are unique to this, and maybe you can speak to them is one, there's no real tenants there. And, um, so, you know, that's, that's gotta be advantageous, especially now. I mean, you, you, you can't really have any facilities, uh, they're not going to have a tenant strike. Right. And, and, um, the other question, um, that I have for you is generally speaking, uh, how quickly can you drive up rents in these spaces? Cause as I recall, that is probably one of the most unique aspects of, of, of this kind of uh, asset. That's true. We are, our business, Reliant Real Estate Management, is a subset of self-storage. And the subset, we are a niche business. We are a value-add company. We look specifically for troubled uh, properties that, for one reason or another, are not performing uh, as well as they ought to in our eyes. Uh, typically, because the, in, the industry is fairly fractured, uh, we'll find mom-and-pop-operated stores where the, the rental rates are not nearly where they ought to be. Management is loose. They don't collect late fees. They don't have all the products that they really need to have to compete with the REITs in any area. For instance, truck rentals, security, uh, management is not well-trained. Uh, there are not enough fencing. All sorts of things go into why a facility is not performing the way it ought to. And we pride ourselves on being able to turn those things around and add value to what we, we buy. And because, like apartment houses, uh, self-storage is valued on its net operating income, we can take a facility within 18 months and turn it completely around, adding 20 to 25% uh, income, and uh, the value goes up uh, consistently higher than most other investments. We've seen over the years that we can add 40% to the value of a business in a very short time. And that's, uh, I mean, that's really just math, right? I mean, for those of you who are out there and you, you know, you're, you might be an investor club already, but we talk about this all the time. If you are dealing with these larger real estate assets, they are, you know, ultimately selling on a multiple and we call it cap rates, right? And um, if you have a cap rate that's uh, relatively constant and over 18 months, you've increased the value of it significantly, you are going to end up being able to sell it for a significantly higher value because it's based on a multiple and then you add leverage to that. So, so that's where, you know, being able to drive up NOI very, very quickly is pretty unique in this situation. Now, um, now, you know, let me ask you this, uh, obviously we're in the middle of these extraordinary times and you kind of alluded to how things are going with COVID-19, but, but tell us a little bit about the portfolio and how it's performed, um, you know, through this pandemic mess. Well, our income has gone up on a monthly basis by a significant amount. And part of that is due, I alluded to the cash management aspect of our business, uh, but also to marketing. Prior to the pandemic, we had switched over to a web-based marketing system mm -hmm. wherein a, a potential uh, tenant can actually sign on and lease over the, over the web, not having to come into the store. That kind of mitigated the circumstances where 30% of, of our clients come through drive-by just seeing it. Uh, we've compensated for that with the web-based that, and in fact, 
we have surpassed what we were doing before the pandemic. On top of that is the fact that our clients are not moving out. They, they, they don't yeah. come to see their belongings. They're not going and, anywhere, right? <laughs> no, they're not. So right. our turn, turn is normally 30%. It's, it's dropped down to below 10. Yeah. So we're keeping the clients we have. It's always our philosophy to raise rents when we can. And we continue to raise rents during the pandemic. Our occupancy, typically 80% is the low end of where we are, as high as 90%. And we are edging toward that with all our facilities. So we're in a very healthy position. I would say the only, uh, the only facility that is not doing as well as we had hoped is one that we built out of the ground. And because school hasn't started, uh, it's very difficult to rent up when people are not moving. Yeah. So that one's even that one is running up, but not as quickly as we had hoped. Yeah. So basically, what you're seeing is maybe there's a little bit of a decrease in, um, decrease in new new people who are coming in to put their storage stuff in there. But the you're making up for that in the part of the portfolio that's already been occupied. That's true. There are some other factors that we weren't expecting. One of the the, the government loans, which we've taken full advantage of. Uh, to help us get through the tough times, although we never really needed the loans to get through the tough times. They certainly are nice to have. Um, the statistics on what's happening nationally are just that. They're national. Self-storage is a local business. It's a five-mile radius business. And so we're unique in that we only go in second and third tier markets. We don't go in primary markets where, which are typically oversupplied with self storage. So that also adds to what we're doing because as you've read in the papers, I'm sure uh, many people in the cities who are, who can are moving out to the suburbs and that has also helped uh, create what we see as a surge coming in the last quarter of this year and next year of new tenants. Yeah, it's interesting. So there are some asset classes uh, that are that appear to be in the grand scheme of things, sort of, uh, for better or worse, benefiting from the current situation. We certainly in working class apartment buildings are seeing the same thing. And it sounds like, um, you know, the the self storage space is sort of experiencing something similar. You know, um, I got to ask you in comparison to, um, you know, because 2008, we saw a similar uh, self-storage resilience during the financial crisis. Why was that? And, you know, do you see any parallels between that and what's going on now? Well, the only parallel I can see is that there was a, a, a recession. Yeah. The recessions were caused by different reasons. Obviously the pandemic was the, was the, the factor that caused what's happening now. Back then it truly was a, almost a, a depression. Uh, the only thing that changed for us was the, the character of our tenants, uh, small independent contractors who depended upon the real estate construction boom, uh, moved out and kind of disappeared, but they were replaced by residential folks. And in 2008, there was really a, a dearth of product. There was a huge influx of new construction that went on between 2008 and 2018 uh, the number of facilities went from 37,000 to 60,000. And yet most of those facilities were built in major metropolitan areas. And so 
we are left with still a, a, a pent up demand in the areas we are in. Um, and so this recession is kind of artificial. Mm-hmm. We still see people needing and being able to pay for what they get, which happened in the other recession. In that regard, they were the same. Uh, this one, the only, the, the only other uh, similarity is that people continue to pay their rent. And our uh, accounts receivable is typically 3%. We're at 1.8% now, which is very low. Uh, we consider that to be because people don't want to lose their belongings. We don't like selling their belongings, but most people don't want to leave, leave their stuff to be sold. Sure. You know, um, again, going back to this idea that, you know, self-storage performed pretty well, even through 2008 at at the national level. And I know um, in conversations with you that certainly your portfolio did not significantly suffer during that that period of time. Um, Assuming we come out of the current recession, again, in a similar situation, relatively unscathed, what happens to prices in this space after that? Well, this is, there's a crystal ball question, but in our opinion, if cap rates remain where they are uh, and we continue to, to gain NOI, there's no reason to uh, think that uh, what's going to happen three years from now, which is typically our, our low end of, what we're looking at, uh, why we wouldn't be seeing the same gains that we see under any other circumstances. Do you, do you uh, think Lou that, that, I mean, a part of why I'm asking that is I would think that, you know, coming out of this recession, I think that there are certain asset classes, for example, I think it's the same, the same is true for, uh, our working class apartments, which are doing extremely well during this time that, that there may be additional movement from, you know, larger investors into the space because they start looking at it potentially as, you know, a little bit more of a safe haven asset. Well, it's already, it's already started to happen. There's a, you probably know there's a huge amount of venture capital that is around for safe haven and certainly commercial real estate doesn't look very good right now. Yeah. Uh, And this asset class during the last recession and even now, uh, outperforms everything else that one could look at. So w- w- there's no shortage of appetite on, on behalf of the REITs who only grow by acquisition uh, or, uh, or others. We're not really, uh, to say we're not worried is an understatement. We're very optimistic about what's going to happen in the next three to five years. What's ironic to me, and again, this has um, a lot to do with, you know, your own you know, your own ability to manage these assets and really create value uh, with the value add programs that you have. But thinking about this as a potentially um, safe haven asset is kind of funny when you think about it. I, I understand in, in talking to you and and uh, Todd before that, you know, the types of average investor returns have, have you know, annualized have been in the 40% range. Is that true? Yes, and it's it's because of what we are we had already discussed about. We try to buy them at a at what amounts to a steep discount, yeah. and through our expertise and experience, uh, kind of jerk these things into where they ought to be. Yeah, nice safe um, haven uh, numbers there, though. I would think. I so, know. So, 
So that's great. Um, of course, you know, these numbers don't happen just like that. And, and you talk a little bit about the, you know, the, you know, the, the role of good management and that sort of thing. Um, requires a good business plan, requires flawless execution. You know, you mentioned sort of the value add, but can you dive into that a little bit more? I mean, you, um, you know, one of the things I think is interesting is you focus, you know, a lot more on A-class facilities. Um, why is that? Um, you know, when you look at these tertiary markets, what are you looking for? And, you know, what kinds of business plans do you, you know, what do those broadly look like? Okay. Well, firstly, I'll let you know, you know this already. Yeah. We have a department that is devoted to doing nothing but culling through a hundred facilities a month to see, and we get them in all different ways. They get thrown over the transom by people that know when we put something under contract, we close. In fact, in the past 10 years, there was only one facility we, we did not close on a deal at the price we, we gave them. Um, so we have our own internal appraisal department uh, that scans everything. And so once we, we find a facility, whether it's in bad shape, good shape, poorly managed or not, that is in a location that we think can be brought up to class A uh, quality, and I'll get to what that means in a minute, then we're not afraid to dive in. Uh, so we do a couple of just generally speaking analyses. One is competition. The other is demographic. So first we want to know, uh, how many people live in that area? And we use certain algorithms to determine how many square feet per head that area can sustain without worrying about diluting other storage facilities, uh, comp the competition. Secondly, the, then comes competition. How many square feet is available to that population now? And if we built one, would it impact the rest of them? Are we just diluting the soup? Yeah. So once we've convinced ourselves that both of those uh, metrics are in our favor, we are willing to take a risk on that, that property. So we're very careful about what we go after. And again, they have to be at a point, the price point that we know if we do what we need to do, that we can increase rates significantly over a two to three year period. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, the industry is fragmented. Most of the industry is not public storage or extra space. It's just mom and pop. I call them mom and pop people that own one to five, maybe six, seven facilities all in all. And those people are not, some of them may be sophisticated, but a number of them are not. Uh, they're the metric they use when we first come in, which is music to my ears is our clients love us. And right. yeah, to me, that means the rates aren't high enough. <laughs> <laughs> I know that sounds brutal, but that's really how we think. Yeah. Uh, they're not at market rates. Then these people are leaving money on the table. Sure. Sure. We're looking for those types of opportunities. Now I mentioned the class A facilities. Yeah. We've always thought that the best facility in any category is the thing that sells first and for the highest price. So we've decided that anything we do has to end up being a class A facility. Class A meaning security, it's got good security, it's well-maintained, uh, the management is well-dressed, uniformed, courteous, well-trained. Uh, 
the unit mix is a good one so that any unit that someone might want is available. Uh, the advertising is first class. We rent trucks. We have a showroom that, that we sell uh, all sorts of retail items in. Uh, all in all, when people walk in, and people means women, 60% of our clientele rent are women. And so when a woman walks in our showroom, she'll walk into a well-lighted uh, place uh, that has clean bathrooms, uh, has well-stocked and orderly-looking uh, uh, materials that our managers stand up when they walk in, give them a tour of the facility, anything that you can imagine that any good retail uh, facility of any sort would want is, as a, a a showroom is what we try to do. And when we go up against uh, any of the REITs in a particular market area, we want to be the best in class in that market area. So if all things are equal, uh, a client, potential client would rent from us rather than someone else. Um, let me ask you a question here. For, for those who are, um, again, part of the Wealth Formula Credit Invest Group, for example, they see frequently you know, these business plans in the apartment buildings where, you know, there's very discreet, you know, very typical types of value add things that you do. You know, you're, you're putting laundry machines in, in your, you know, you're renovating kitchens and, you know, putting in nice floors. Okay. What is it, what does value add look like typically? Give me, give us an image of what that looks like in self-storage. There are several different things that we would do. The, the 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 variables are one rent rates for sure mm -hmm. that want to make sure that our rent rates are eventually at market rate and typically the ones we buy are 25 to 30 percent lower than they ought to be mm -hmm. so that's that's a value add feature that's a, a given secondly most of them need have deferred maintenance of one sort or another air conditioners aren't working uh paint peeling on the walls just lack of maintenance there's dirt on the floor. Um, so we always rebrand these facilities, new paint, everything is fixed. It's kind of the Rudy Giuliani theory of, you know, you don't want to see a window. Uh, thirdly, security. We always have fences. We always have electronically monitored gates. We have cameras everywhere. Yeah. Uh, fourthly, well lighted, uh, no one wants to walk in a facility where you can't see where you're going. And, you know, if you've been, you've been in storage facilities, they have long halls and they're kind of dreary looking if you don't have them well lighted. Well, ours don't look like that. Yeah. Um, there, there's, they're as light as one can have them. Uh, so security fencing, they have to be paved. I know that sounds funny to someone that lives in a, in a suburban area, but a lot of these places come with dirt aisles between them. Hmm. So we have to that a significant other element would be additional space. Uh, as an example, in one facility we just bought in Florida about two years ago, it was 50,000 square feet of storage, which seems like a, a decent sized facility. And it is, it had another three acres next door that came with it. And we decided it could stand another 50,000 square feet. So we doubled the size of that facility and it filled up in six months. So value add, well, we added value by building more. Uh, and as you said, we're leveraged. So every dollar we get is three times what it is because yeah. we, we don't borrow that much against them. Um, and then there's management. Uh, 
mean, typically a mom and pop store is managed by a mom and pop. Uh, they're, and if they're not mom and pop, they've hired somebody at minimum what rates, uh, not well-trained, not uniformed. They don't look professional. We train everybody we have. They have to be, uh, they have to be on staff for six months as an assistant manager before they even get the opportunity to be a manager. We have residential, uh, we have residents at, at every one of our facilities because we want our managers to have ownership of the facility. Now we control everything, pricing included, from our central office in Roswell, Georgia, but these folks take responsibility and they sign off on our budgets. And they are responsible for, for uh, making their quotas on sales. So to give you an idea of how happy yeah. our staff is, our average length of stay for our managers right now is eight years. Wow. So yeah, we pay them well, we pay them much higher than the industry standards and we expect them to perform well. Uh, and we, we outperform literally every other chain I know of. I have not even stated the same kind of career for eight years, Lou. <laughs> <laughs> Neither have I. I don't know if you want to manage to leave that book, but we'll, we'll, we'll take your application. Um, I know you said you don't have a crystal ball. I think we have some idea. If you're asking me, you know, you've got a situation here right now where, you know, if this comes out the way we think it's going to come out in another repeat of, you know, some, uh, you know, safe haven type results uh, through this, uh, we'll, we may be looking at some additional cap rate com compression. But there's an additional factor that um, the future, in my mind, plays a big role in self-storage, and that's demographics. Tell me how an aging population of baby boomers affects uh, self-storage. Well, the aging population, I'm an aging population, I'm in the aging population demographic. <laughs> uh, you know, you bought all these belongings for your kid and, and you say, what am I going to do with them if I'm going to downsize? And the answer is you don't want to sell them because you get nothing. You think your kids are going to get them eventually. Uh, so that's a, that's a, a fairly significant number of people that once they put it in there, they never want to sell it. I, I, I know this sounds cynical, but that's, that's the way it is. Yeah. The young folks who are moving from apartments to houses have to store their things. Uh, and if they're downsizing, if, if they're going to new housing, which doesn't have the closet space or the garage space that they may have had, have to store their things as well. So we get them coming and we get them going. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a really interesting um, to see what will happen in this space is this, you know, I guess uh, you are a self-described aging population yourself, but, you know, pe more and more people are downsizing from the McMansions and from the larger homes, and then you've got a new generation of, uh, of individuals who don't seem particularly interested uh, in those homes. Um, so where does that stuff go? You know, and that's that's a big part of, I think, uh, one of the driving factors for growth in self-storage as well. Anyway, lots of different things I think we could talk about. But, Lou, is there anything else that you want to say about self-storage that we should know? Generally speaking, we've covered what we need to. Uh, I think talking about the robust nature of, of our sector, which is a very narrow sector, is the most compelling argument for any investor 
to know that if they put their money somewhere, it's not going to disappear because a, 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 an anchor tenant has, has that they thought was going to be forever, like Sears Roebuck, has vacated their 20% of a shopping center. Yeah. Uh, it's robust because of the elements I told you. Um, no tenants, no rent strikes, right? Well, we haven't had a rent strike yet. <laughs> they don't talk to each other while they're there. <laughs> There's so few of them there on any given day, I don't think they could organize it. It would have to be a two-person rent strike. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Fantastic. Listen, Lou, it was great having you on the show. Uh, we are looking forward to continued uh, partnership in the future. And uh, we're looking forward to you know hearing from you in the Wealth Formula Credit Investor Group. Thanks for coming back though on Wealth Formula Podcast. It's, it's my pleasure. And we really are excited about our partnership going forward and uh, look forward to many happy days. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Listen, if you want to learn more about what we are doing in this RWF um, uh, business, uh, you need to be part of our private investor club and go through that accredited investor onboarding process. You can certainly do that if you'd like. Uh, you have to uh, just go to wealthformula.com and sign up, and I encourage you to do that. That being said, understand that it is uh, you know it is possible to make money at any time in the financial uh, in the in the financial cycles, right? You can be in recession, you can be in in a booming economy, you can lose money or make money in either one. You just have to be involved in the right thing. You got to be involved with the right people. Now, I do not believe that you have to settle for one percent on bonds uh, to you know to have safe money. In fact, let me just point out. I mean, I'm not even talking about you know self storage or any other kind of real estate, but wealth formula banking, which you can check out at wealthformulabanking.com. I mean, I think it's just as safe as any, gosh, probably safer than most corporate bonds and, um, you know, <laughs> a lot more profitable. At any rate, uh, I hope you enjoyed the show. Um, if you do, please go to iTunes uh, or Stitcher or wherever and give me a five-star review. It certainly helps with the rankings of the show and continue to get great guests on. That's it for me this week uh, on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.